Welcome to the Rationalish Podcast. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm with the scintillating Eddie Matthews. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Eddie, is it true that you recommended our next podcast be about online dating as a way of getting the fact that you're single out to our audience? Um, <laughs> guilty as charged. <laughs> I thought so. Well, that's just a, it's a cue for people to, to check into our Twitter feed and uh, make sure that they check all the posts and uh, maybe see some great uh, action photos of Eddie Matthews. Uh, see, see if you, uh, you like what you see. Uh, that's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Yeah, no promises, but, you know, there's some good stuff. All right, what are we doing today, Eddie? Uh, talking about universal basic income, um, which is a fascinating topic and one that's picked up a lot of momentum in recent years. Yeah, I mean, I think, do you want to just give a back, like, brief background of what UBI is? I think the nice part about it is it's so simple. It doesn't require any explanation. I know. Yeah, I mean, what, what do you think of when you think of UBI, when you hear it? Well, I guess just recency bias. I think of Andrew Yang and him talking about how um, he wants to distribute a thousand dollars a month um, for every American citizen, and kind of arriving at a thousand dollars a month, basically because that would—that's basically poverty level, um, or like you know, twelve thousand dollars a year is like kind of uh, abject poverty. And so, if you were to at least have like a floor of twelve thousand dollars, then everyone would be out of abject poverty, and then you know, kind of, I build up from there. But it's all really in the name. Um, universal, everybody gets it. Um, basic, it's meant to be a floor. And income, it's money, you know. Exactly, yeah. I think that's pr probably the main selling point is how simple it is. And I think that that is one of the reasons why it receives so much support from all sides of the political debate, especially in the United States. Uh, there's, a, there's a number of different things that are controversial about it, uh, having to do with how you fund it, what individuals are going to do with that sort of money, what type of impact it would have on a wide scale. Um, but I do think that it is gaining traction partially because of Andrew Yang, uh, but also partially because of the rapidly growing inequality in the United States and the kind of bellowing social services programs that we run and their inefficiencies. Um, it does kind of seem like that this is the perfect storm for kind of a radical change in the way we do social What's services the most in the United States. appealing part of the idea for you? I would say the most appealing part is it's kind of broad, the broad coalition of supporters it has. You don't see a lot of, especially economic policies today, that have support from both the right and the left. And I think that the fact that both supporters on the far left and the far right are against it is even more attractive to me because it shows that it could kind of serve as this basic marker. You said $1,000 a month, that's Andrew Yang's proposal. It could kind of serve as this basic marker that would allow for shifts in one direction or another depending on you know the political climate at the time. Um, in a way that we can't really do today because of the complexities of the social service programs. 
Uh, and I think that, yeah. Yeah, let me, let me ask you this question if I yeah. can interject really quick. Um, make the case for, for universal basic income from a hardcore conservative perspective and then make the case for universal basic income from uh, you know, a left perspective, a left-leaning perspective. Sure. So from the right side, more libertarian side, you know, they've always been against larger government and kind of bloated government, wasted services, and this would completely dismantle tons of social service programs. Um, it would get rid of all kinds of transaction costs uh, in between the government allocating funds. It would also allow individuals to basically take control of their lives in a way where they basically wouldn't be given food stamps for specific type of foods. They would essentially be able to feed themselves and not be treated like children instead of be treated like adults. I think that appeals to a lot of people on the right. Um, I also just think that it, it is seen as something that is just a, a lot more efficient in terms of the kind of reallocation of basic funds for the sustainability of society. On the left side, I think a lot of those same things are seen as potential negatives. The kind of deconstruction of the current social services systems would, in their mind, or could lead to a drastic increase. Wait, but let, yeah. let me – we'll get into that in a bit, but let's say from the left, make the argument like, like – For it? Though. I mean it's essentially a floor for – Poverty, there's a lot of – the main things are giving everyone a chance to basically have a backup plan, have a safety net. Um, they've, there's been evidence in some studies that it allows people to get out of abusive relationships. It allows people to explore other types of jobs. I think it gives people a, an alternative to jobs that they feel like they're forced to work, um, and it allows for mm – -hmm individuals to kind of access services they might not be able to otherwise. I think it also, yeah. from kind of a centrist standpoint, would lead to a lot of, in the U.S. specifically, kind of drastic uh, coordination of like center states as well. The shifts to urban uh, ocean side areas has been so drastic that it's kind of gutted the United States from the middle out. And I think if you're receiving a baseline set of funds that can go a lot further somewhere like you know utah or oklahoma people will be a lot more incentivized to basically try to start businesses in those regions i also think that's part of the the rights attraction is that it it does seem to incentivize entrepreneurial activity um without kind of a, like putting all your eggs in the kind of trickle down economics basket yeah, no, I think that's well said. And I think that, um, so I think to be clear about people thinking about how, so inflation, right? Inflation comes when we start printing more money, not when you distribute money that's already in the economy. So I think the idea here is that we would shift government funding already that is in use via social welfare programs and then create new. So what Andrew Yang talks about is a value added tax. Um, so basically at each stage of the manufacturing and distribution of a good, there would be a small tax for the government and then those, and that would go to the government in a fund. And then 
that um, that tax actually gets it, it decreases the further that good goes from source to consumer, if that makes sense. So an example um, example that I that I saw explained was basically talking about you know a chair. So you know the lumber company that the that made the chair um, would give the biggest uh, kind of value added tax, let's say, you know, 10 bucks to, um, the government. And then when the raw kind of wood of the chair went to the, uh, furniture, you know, craftsmen, right. They would contribute, um, also another value added tax, but it would be diminished. So instead of 10 bucks, let's say it would be, um, are, are women already texting you because of our, our call out to, uh, to, to yeah it's it's endless is that what's happening? honestly i just it's endless <laughs> um, i don't want you to get too far so, into the value added tax because it's kind of a different issue that's mainly andrew yang's proposal to fund ubi right well yeah but the the obvious thing is like how do you how are you gonna get two trillion dollars to distribute to 350 million americans right? exactly so i think the andrew yang's actually the only one that i've seen that proposes a value added tax um, it's one of the ways you could do it. I think pretty much all the proposals, except for the extremely left-wing ones, basically incorporate the current costs of social services into this ta- into this um, kind of a thousand dollars a month, the basic income fund. But, but, but I. So you know, and then just to kind of finish the example, mm-hmm. like it goes kind of down down the so the more it gets closer to the consumer the less the proportion of value added tax goes to the government if that makes sense so like the the furniture distribution center would give 3 bucks instead of 10 so you can kind of see it diminish um on like the whore. and so it would be a nice supplement and it would be like a really good like i agree with Andrew Yang in that it would be a really good timing for it to do it because currently in America we don't have value added tax but, you know, I think there's 150 other countries that do, and most of Europe does. And so it would be this new source of um, income for the federal government to supplement all everything else that's being cut in terms of Medicaid and, um, you know, in terms of all the social welfare programs. Yeah, I think the reason that he chose that specific plan is due to the fact that he's largely focused on the, the incoming kind of uh, – glut of jobs that are going to be d- outdone by automation specifically. Um, I think he draws from the 47% automation rate of jobs that's anticipated from a famous um, Oxford study a few years back. Uh, and if you take those kind of facts as gospel, then it does seem like there's not just a, a desire for UBI, but kind of a necessity of UBI, especially when it all yeah. comes back to this idea that work is essential to not only the economy, but kind of the way we see ourselves and live and find fulfillment in life in the modern world. And I think that is one of the biggest Mm. sticking areas that I see kind of opponents of UBI sticking to. All current studies of UBI and unconditional cash transfers have some sort of component where they register how much people's hours were worked to drop or how many, uh, how many, how much the unemployment rate goes up. Um, and we can get into that in a second. Cause I think that is very interesting. Um, mm. 
But what exact? So what exactly attracts you to UBI? Are you? A, what would you say if you were the governor of a of a city or at right now? Would you feel like you have enough evidence to try some sort of UBI program? Uh, no, but that wouldn't stop me trying. <laughs> you just do it without the evidence. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, how do you create evidence? Is someone has to try it? It's true. So um, there just hasn't been a good enough um, like sample set, uh, you know, according to like the, the articles we looked at, there just hasn't been a rigorous enough, um, you know, statistically sound um, set of data to, to draw a definitive conclusion whether it works or not. Um, and so I understand the reticence to roll this out to the entire country. Um, and so I think it would probably be smart to, to start at a smaller scale and then kind of, um, you know, you graduate it to larger scales after that. And then at a national scale, if we feel like we've, you know, are satisfied with the results, but, um, when you say whether it works or not, what do you mean? What would it working UBI look like to you? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think that the, the, just quantity of small businesses would grow. Um, I think that um, underemployment, so not necessarily unemployment, because I don't know if unemployment would really be relevant to this mm -hmm. data, but underemployment would, would diminish. So the idea that somebody who has a PhD and is working at uh, Walmart, that they would, that that thousand dollars a month would allow them to, either put more time into finding the right opportunity or the, you know, that they would get into like a different field and, and reach an income commensurate with their educational level. Or simply reinvestments um, in education, right? I think a lot of the studies have shown that people, yeah. when they do receive extra funds are more likely to re-enroll in higher education programs. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think, yeah, um, in terms of underemployment, small business growth, um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe GDP could be a data point, but I don't know, GDP of like a smaller set, like, I don't know, GDP is so complicated that I don't know if that would actually be relevant, but um, just tr trying to find some way to, to measure um, just the growth of your localized economy of whatever, whatever, wherever you pilot this program, right? Um, so I think that would be relevant because you have to, in some ways see like, well, is this thousand dollars really going into local restaurants and, and like local businesses and, um, that type of thing. So hopefully some sort of like localized consumer economic growth, um, would emerge from it too. That would be a success, but I think it's important to, to define what you mean by success. Um, so it's a good question because somebody could look at, um, a, a rise, in underemployment, like, um, I'm so, yeah, so someone could look at underemployment diminishing, you know, and however you're measuring that, but let's say it's just diminished by 5%. And it's like, is that good enough? Or are we looking for 15%? So negotiating that is a conversation in and of itself to, um, you know, again, to make sure you're asking the right questions rather than highlighting a thing and then not knowing to do with the data, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of the critiques of UBI don't take current baseline into account. 
the current system of benefits is incredibly inefficient and in- right. incredibly complex and cumbersome, and it ends up leading to a lot of dead weight in the government and in the economy. And, and this yeah. is why I think that it appeals to our conservative friends and colleagues in that, like, it's like, imagine we could just cut all the red tape and we can do away with all of the programs that you guys are always trying to cut anyway. And then there's a no strings attached, just like fund for you to draw from and use however you want. That's, And that's why I think um, Milton Freeman was a proponent of it. Right. Yeah, so if we want to look at the kind of the origins, it, it goes back all the way at least until Thomas Paine in the 1700s. He T Paine, yeah, very famously became a rapper later in life. Uh, but yeah, he wrote an essay called Agrarian Justice, which basically discussed the early implementation of UBI in the United States and the colonies. Um, and everyone from Martin Luther King Jr. to Milton Friedman, Frederick Hayek, uh, other Nobel Prize-winning economists have supported the idea. It actually passed in the House of Representatives and was shot down in the Senate in the 1970s um, as a policy in the United States, which was surprising to find out. Under Nixon. Yeah, under Nixon, exactly. He called it a negative income tax, which is essentially what it is. Um that's a dumb way of explaining it, it's, though. It's like you're, <laughs> just br- like just sheer sheer branding. That's like a terrible. You're branding. taking like the simplest idea and like, just making it way more confusing than it needs to be. Um, just yeah. you, like don't put a paradox in the thing you're trying to brand. Yeah, true. <laughs> Anytime you put a paradox in something, it's usually not a good sell. Um, yeah. Okay, so do you want to talk about the controversies that are kind of stirred up by a UBI activists? Um, yeah, so the ones kind of, um, we'll put the articles that we're, uh, drawing from in this, uh, research into the bio as well. So we're looking at, uh, what would happen if we just gave people money, uh, by Andrew Flores on 538. Um, and then we're also looking at one of, um, kind of an op-ed detracting from this idea, universal basic income, a thoroughly wrongheaded idea by Milton Ezrati. Um, and then you, we've, we've kind of looked at some other sources as well that we can link to if we refer to them. Um, so, so, yeah, some of the detractors, I think, are talking about how basically, like, while you would distribute uh, whatever amount of income you agree upon evenly and universally, the needs of people are not evenly and universally distributed, i.e., um, you know, somebody who is in a wheelchair or somebody, you know, who is uh, just handicapped by whatever circumstances, right? Um, So that $1,000 a month wouldn't necessarily, it's not, you know, a substitute for, you know, maybe the human connection that uh, that also comes with some of the social welfare programs that they might benefit from or some of the kind of Medicaid type um, care that they get. so I think that's one kind of major one that has to be taken seriously. Um, I guess another, I mean, I, I think from my reading of, so from my reading of the Milton Ezrati article um, on Forbes, I forgot to mention that he, uh, he wrote it on Forbes. I didn't see a terribly thoroughly, like well substantiated argument or like it, it seemed 
not very rigorous, his detractions from the case. Uh, to me, it seemed more like this undercurrent of fear of the unknown. Yeah, I mean, it's an incredibly patronizing argument, but it's one that shows up time and again when we look at detractors of UBI. It is essentially the idea that we can't trust poor people to spend the money on things that they actually need because right. the way he points yeah. to illiteracy rates and these other really demeaning sorts yeah, of statistics was... without backing up with any facts. Uh, when a lot of the early studies and pilot programs, which there are way too few considering how big the idea has, has become, um, but there are quite a few currently being run both in developing countries and in developed countries. Um, but yeah, the the idea that individuals who are receiving welfare benefits need to be treated like children and given money for specific things because they can't be trusted with the money themselves really isn't backed up in the data at all. Uh, most of the studies show that any individual who's given money despite their socioeconomic status will spend it on things like education and food and anti-poverty um, programs rather than temptation goods, which are alcohol, um, tobacco, or if you're Eddie, lingerie, anything of that nature. Chocolate. <laughs> chocolate, exactly. Lingerie and chocolate. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the other big things that people point to is the idea of work. And I think this is... Go ahead. You got it. Oh, well, just that um, he he cites one of his, um, you know, objections as a uh, diminishment in the hours worked per week. Um, and I think that's just like a silly argument. Like 40 hours a week is an arbitrary number, but it's taken as gospel. And I think that um, the world's changing in a way that 40 hours a week uh doesn't necessarily like we can set the bar of full time wherever we want. That's a movable scale in 40 hours. There's nothing inherent to that. Like, there's no data. Well, I shouldn't say that, but I would infer that the data doesn't support 40 hours being the most efficient quantity of work in a week to get um, like both a good work life balance. So for the individuals, but also for, just the corporations to get the most like value out of their employees that I don't necessarily um, think that the data supports that 40 hours is, is the optimal amount. So there's a couple of issues here. It's, it's productivity in terms of kind of growth and kind of economic stimulation. And there's also the personal benefits and the personal detractions of work. I think the reason UBI speaks to a lot of these things is because of the fact that society today has become so work-centric, then it doesn't necessarily match any sort of kind of natural boundary. Just like you said, it was only it really the Industrial Revolution and the period around the Industrial Revolution where a lot of the holidays uh, that were originally around in the UK and other parts of Europe were eliminated to sustain the factory production process. Um, There's only a couple hundred years ago when there were 40 bank holidays in the United Kingdom every year, and people rarely ever worked eight to five, nine to five. Um, so it's not like this has been a thing for for generations. Um, and it, yeah. this speaks. To it's still a thing here, by the way. Yeah. In the UK. I mean, what is like they just they take off way more time than we do in America. Well, there's now there's like, like there's like five bank holidays a year. There used to be 44. 
and that was yeah, just like not even a holiday. It was just like a day off. It wasn't like we were celebrating anything. <laughs> oh like, yeah, here, here's a quick here's a quick like note from an expat on a British bank holiday. You think like, well, yeah, you know, things are closed, but things aren't really closed. Like I can still go to, you know, any kind of retail or kind of you know Chuck E. Cheese, General Taco Bell, yeah, like coffee shop or Welsh like you know whatever. Yeah, all that stuff, and and it's like no. Like everything is closed on the, and everyone's like, well, yeah, it's bank holiday. Things are closed. And I was like, well, yeah, but like on Labor Day in America, you still go to like 80% of things and it's still open and there's still like somebody there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, when I was living in uh, Rwanda, we were staying at this, this house near the center of town and somebody had been like, oh, next week is uh, like remembrance week. So you should probably... Like, be ready for that. And we're like, okay, I guess we'll just be prepared. <laughs> and it was literally everything was closed. Yeah. And nobody was even allowed to, like, yeah. peddle food on the streets. And we had to, like, mooch off our yeah, neighbors wow. for, like, four days because we were very overbearing. <laughs> but, yeah, it's a real thing. <laughs> they did warn you. They did. They kind of warned us. They were like, hey, I don't think you're prepared. And we were like, oh, we don't really know what we're doing. This is also a, this is also just while we're on, like, classic British things. It's also a very British thing. Where it's like, oh, it's a bank holiday on Monday. I'm like, oh, cool. Why do they call it a bank holiday? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> they just have no idea. Which it's is just funny. a day off. But yeah, I mean, they have tried things like in New Zealand recently. A few companies have tried four-day work weeks and seen very little drops in productivity. Um, and I think this speaks back oh, to yeah. your... Your kind of assertion that the five day nine to five work week is not necessarily the most productive, nor is it the most fulfilling. Yeah, and I think this. Is, I mean, the research yeah. I and sorry, you go. No, yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, just the research I've, you know, I'm not an expert on this area, but I that I've uh, tangentially looked at in this area, it it heavily, um, and it could be. I mean, there's probably a lot of selection bias in this, but it heavily supports the fewer than 40 hours is better for everybody involved. Yeah, it just becomes kind of the standard and then people kind of this isomorphic copying of what the standard is so you can seem like a real company. Um, And I think it does end up diminishing, especially the quality of life for people who are underemployed or in jobs that they don't necessarily find fulfilling. I think that is one of the main promises of UBI that isn't necessarily given in other types of programs um, is that you do have this alternative. And I think it would massively drive up the wages for jobs that nobody wants to work, Yeah, uh, which would be a great thing. Those are the types of jobs that should pay the most. If nobody wants to work them, they should, people who are willing to do them should be rewarded for that sacrifice. Yeah. And I think that the reason why UBI, I would, I feel like is getting more kind of cultural momentum right now is that people our age and a little bit older than us. So like the, I guess the older half of the millennial generation um, responds much more just emotively to this idea that work is not fulfilling. Whereas I think for the baby boomers, they're like, well, yeah, work's not fulfilling. It's work. Like, why would you like, why would you question that? Like that's not a part of their purview in the same way where it's like, well, yeah, it's, Work's just a place you go and, you know, you do your thing and they pay you and, like, you make some friends there and, you know, you have – it's not supposed to be, like, a 
a major, you know, life changing part of your life. And our generation's like, yeah, but you know, (laughs) but so I just, I think that that could be another contributing factor of like why this is really kind of picking up steam right now, along with automation, along with, you know, a, a lot of other factors. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think if you look at the the former economists that have supported this, even uh, Keynes was predicting that we wouldn't have to work nearly as much in fifty years after World War II. But it's become this thing where work, where having to work hasn't become it's kind of become a, a negative in a yeah, way. It's stigmatized somehow transformed into kind of this. Yeah, this like neoliberal attitude towards the fulfillment that one's supposed to receive through kind of this uh, Protestant type ethic, um, and I think that that is one of the main opposition opponents. Every, I'm, like I was, you mentioned before, the idea, at least in in the early studies, there's a famous study in Canada where they did uh, UBI, and everyone always mentions how it's a big success because very few people dropped out of work, mm-hmm. and I don't understand why that should be a metric at all of the success of a UBI program or any social services program for that matter. Yeah. I mean, Cause I can see poverty levels going up being negative and any sort of social yeah. costs, but any, maybe an economic costs and productivity costs, but no, I think that's a good people leaving work because they didn't like their job should not be seen as a negative. I think that's a good point. Um, and well, like, yes, and no, I guess. So it's a good point because if you're, um, yeah, let's say you're a two-parent household and um, your spouse just had a baby and let's say she was working part-time and now this allows her to give up that part-time job. And so under when you look at the when you look at the data, you see that number going down and that's alarming for some people, but it's like well, now that kid has a parent uh, more time from their parent and is more kind of um, just more attention like that. I, how can that not be seen as a good thing all the way around, but you wouldn't necessarily get that from looking at the data as you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the attachment we have to work as a necessary component of life is misdirected. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that you could, massively argue that we've gone too far rather than the other way around. But I guess the other thing is like why I would, I guess, respond more tepidly to your point about like why why should that be even a data point at all is um, if you can correlate the people who drop out of the workforce entirely with like negative ramifications to the consumer economy or to, I don't know, rise in crime or then it becomes concerning. But, it, but I guess it would be hard to directly correlate those and like kind of prove causation. But if they were strongly correlated, then yeah, I think it would be alarming. I mean, yeah, that's a secondary statistic though, right? I think that just saying that people are out of work because they are given money is not surprising. And it isn't necessarily backed up in the statistics. I think a lot of the studies that have shown that people don't necessarily – quit their jobs they just work less hours and they spend more time at home with their families right, right. Um, which you have to be pretty cold-hearted to think that that's a negative well it's um, a negative if you hate the... your kids you know true very true or I mean, it's a negative if work. you hate your parents if you're a kid <laughs> well most of these programs it's only 18 plus so we can talk about the social aspects of this that's a good segue 
Well done. Well done. The it's all planned. idea of who would necessarily receive the funds, I think, plays into some of the concerns of the left that this would be used as a way of kind of demotivating immigration by making it very difficult to receive these sorts of funds. Oh, be, um, but you mean gaining access to citizenship? People would be more exactly. protective because now there's a lot of money that goes along with citizenship. Exactly. If you did tie the idea of citizenship directly to the recipient, the receiving of these funds, there would be a massive incentive to kind of change the entire immigration system, which needs to be overhauled anyway. So that's not necessarily a negative, but you can see how these sorts of kind of secondary ramifications could have huge knock-on impacts, which is why it really shouldn't be implemented at a national stage at this point, but why we really should pay attention to kind of the wider scale citywide impact of kind of neighboring UBI programs, maybe statewide programs in the future. Um, One of the things that I do think is a positive that people don't really talk about is how the simplicity of UBI would kind of allow for a fulcrum to be developed between like the far right and the far left in terms of policy implications. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like both sides are kind of arguing past each other in modern political debates if there was a central focus point that everyone could say okay here is where we are now everyone on the left wants it to go left everyone on the right wants it to go right then you could have much more focused arguments about the implications of kind of shifting something along an axis rather than arguing different data points on you know multiple different scales yeah so if you were to um if you were to, to try to completely dismantle the argument for UBI, taking the opposite stance, like what would you say if you, if you were kind of the um, you know prosecuting attorney of somebody defending this notion? I think the best critiques I've seen, I would stay well away from any of the work arguments because, like I've said, I think they're just terribly unbased in any factual understanding of reality. But I think that the kind of undiagnosed aspects of it are most prominent when it comes to the knock-on effects on impoverished individuals because there will always be people that fall through the cracks even with the current system. So how would we kind of govern over individual healthcare costs and cancer costs for individuals that can't pay with their 12000 um, annual salaries would we be able to kind of legislate against some of these negative externalities? Are there kind of psychological impacts of having these funds be given to you? I think most of the data doesn't support this, but there also isn't a lot of data to draw from. Yeah. Um, and I think that the knock-on effects especially – you can't really see them even from small-scale UBI systems. I think it would be interesting to see, let's say, how a high schooler who's thinking about dropping out would approach his final few years in college or in high school knowing that when he turns 18, he's going to be receiving $1,000 a month. So we'd have to build this entire infrastructure around the system where I think you would only be able to receive a certain amount if you graduated from high school or got a GED. You would have to legislate for other types of things. Then there's more red tape, though. So that's what I'm saying. I think that the idea that there can be absolutely no 
other sorts of effects. Like you would pretty much, I think, I would think have to introduce kind of a nationwide budgeting classes into curriculum as well. Um, I think that's just smart. Like, like per, I don't know why personal finance courses aren't as integral to any uh, like public education curriculum from junior high on, you know? I agree. I mean, that should be a thing anyways, but it would pretty much have to be a thing yeah. if we were to shift to this sort of program. And I think there's a lot of kind of minor changes like that that would add up to a kind of dramatic shift in the way we organize society. Not necessarily for the worse, but in a way that we haven't thought through even close to enough. Yeah, I mean, it, the reticence towards this idea is understandable because of how much it would just uproot how society is currently like basically would higher education even be kind of um a pivotal point of people's i guess um like developmental formation or even like their career at all if this was um i don't know like would would that entirely just not collapse, but change in a way that, and maybe it needs to, like, that's just such a huge variable in terms of like, would higher education have nearly as much value if everybody gets $12,000, you know? The evidence suggests that more people would invest in higher education, yeah, which would drive the value down. Right. Um, but not necessarily for the high end. I mean, if you're investing in education more as a personal pursuit, it might not be in the kind of higher intensity economic uh, disciplines, but all, more in the kind of the arts or the humanities. Um, well, I, just, I, I guess I'm just thinking about like I, when, so w what would you set as the age? Would you set 18, 21, 25? Like what? I think 18 is, is fair. Right. If you, so I get, you can get drafted. I guess you get the kid. War, you should. Like we're, we're both like old for our age. So we turned 18 our senior year of high school, right? Like in the fall. <laughs> old for our age is a great saying. I think I've always been old for my age. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but, um, and so what if the kid's like, well, yeah, I mean, I have a thousand dollars a month now. Like why on earth would I go to college? You know, like, I just feel like there's a lot of kids that would be like, oh, like dope. I'll go before you have kind of enough, you're, I guess before your frontal lobe's fully developed, um, which I think ours have just passed that threshold. So yay to us. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think I'll ever get there, but no, yeah, <laughs> I appreciate the confidence. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess it's just like, maybe there's just a lot of more recklessness uh, being, I don't know. Like there's a certain amount of recklessness that you have when you're that age, but usually you don't have a lot of money at that age. So it's like contained, you know, <laughs> but I guess if you start like pumping a thousand dollars a month into that type, you know, with, without anybody having the infrastructure of how to responsibly disciplinely use that, that could have some real uh, unanticipated consequences, you know? My guess would be that it would be great for the economy because you'd have a bunch of willing spenders who now have money for the first time. Yeah, there's um, that. Yeah, that's true. And would, but I also think it would probably push back the average age of undergraduate education, which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. People would have the opportunity to work and decide. It might just of... prolong kind of like childhood even more than it is with our current generation. You know, in in without UVI, right? Like, 
Yeah, no, I, I think that there would be positives and negatives, and that's the thing is it, it always there's no part of this where it's totally positive or totally negative, but it's addressing an issue that is largely a negative and very inefficient in modern society without any necessary alternatives I, other than UBI. I don't see how automation is not a cliff. You know what I'm saying? I do think that the 47% rate is far too high because I think it's always difficult to know what types of jobs will be created. 47%. I, I read that stat too. That that seemed a little ridiculous to me, but I'm somewhere in between. I think there are people that say, no, this is just like any other technological or uh, industrial revolution and that it will create just as many jobs as it diminishes. Uh, but I also, I don't think that's true, but I also don't think that it will reduce the jobs to the extent that people say, but even so, even a 15% increase in automation and takeaway of jobs would be a massive differential. Yeah, that totally. I think something drastic would need to be done. And this is so far the best plan that I've seen to kind of address those issues on a wide scale. So Eddie, what would you do with your thousand dollars a month? Um... Like, are we saying real answer or fun answer? Well, you can do both. Okay. Well, real answer is I'll just I'll just pump it into student loans. I'll just give it right back to the government. <laughs> um. So that's my real answer. Uh, fun answer. Um. The student loans wasn't the fun answer. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like, cause I'm not really an entrepreneurial type in that way. I think I would, I think I would use that money to better enable me to grow the network that I'm already trying to grow with very limited funds. Do you know what I'm saying? So I wouldn't just use that thousand dollars a month to like travel because it would be fun. Although that would be fun, but I would travel <laughs> to like, like I, I would go meet Pete Buttigieg on the campaign trail and I would like use that thousand mm-hmm. dollars to like fly me to South Carolina. I'd be like, listen, Pete, this is why you need me as a speechwriter, you know, or whatever. And so, so you think there, there would probably be an increase in volunteer rates massively. I would think, I would think so. Well, yeah. I mean, here's the thing is that I think the I think that's why the argument's kind of silly. Well, it's like, Oh, well, people are just going to sit on their couch and play video games and, you know, eat pizza. Um, if they get a thousand dollars a month and you know, I feel like anyone who's been on vacation for longer than four days is like, I'm tired of this. <laughs> like uh, that type of lounge lifestyle is, I would think unappealing to most people in their working age, you know, like people are designed to um, actively engage and see kind of that reciprocal, um, you know, to build something. And, and, and that's why, I don't know. We're, so I just think this idea that like something like work that I think is a fundamental part of human nature um, would just be, you know, kind of obliterated once you give people money. I mean, sure, that would be like a small percentage of the population that would happen for. But I don't think it would be, you know, a, a major part of it. But what about you for your thousand bucks? I mean, I think just branching off from your point there, I 
even if someone wanted to, I agree with you that the vast majority would not want to sit at home for more than a couple of weeks and it would get very boring. And you do, people are do get, have this intrinsic drive to kind of find meaning in life. But if they did want to sit at home and eat pizza, I don't think it's the government's job or anyone else's job to say that that's wrong as long as they're not causing any knock-on consequences to... But people would argue that it is um, the government's job if they're the ones giving the money. Like, if someone's doing that with their own money, non-UBI money, it's like, yeah, who cares, whatever. But if it's coming from the government money that everybody, I guess, is kind of technically contributing to, there's the kind of, like, well... I don't know. Like, do you think well, then that you should do you be think, investing in? Do you think be investing in pizza companies because the yeah, pizza <laughs> the pizza prices are going to go through the roof? So I can't gonna imagine what's going to happen to the back into the economy on the stock market. Yeah, but <laughs> but with um, do you think the UBI money? Do you think that people would look at that as government money or as like our money? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, if it were actually implemented in national scale, everyone in America, like, do people? Do you think people would even kind of see that as coming from the government or do you think people would just see that as their own kind of wealth creation and like they're entitled I think to that, the you know? the tra tra transition towards it seeming like a right and not a donation would be very quick it maybe seems, one to two years yeah it seems like that's what's happened in Alaska yeah absolutely so we could talk about the kind of petroleum deposits there once you become accustomed to that baseline, which in some most psychological studies say it takes three months. So I might even be overestimating how long it would take before people would see it as their money. The Alaskan population, most of the money has gone towards investments in children's education. Hmm. Um, and that's one of the widest scale similarities to UBI. And it's in the United States. So there really isn't any evidence from UBI studies, both in the United States and elsewhere, that shows that this is going to have some drastic, dramatic consequence that we haven't thought of. doesn't mean it won't on a large scale, which is why it should be tested further before implementation. But none of the evidence really points to any of these wide-scale fears that it will lead to kind of mass depreciation of the work workforce. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's hard because to say that to not implement it because there's not enough evidence is a silly thing to say because the only way you get evidence again is to is to implement it and, and try it out enough times, you know. But then it's also silly to some respect to be Andrew Yang and be like, when I'm president, I'm gonna do this on a national scale from the federal government. And it's like, whoa, buddy, like I don't know if we have any evidence to support that this would be good for the country by the same token, you know? I think that it's great that he's in the national conversation yeah. because I think it will encourage wide-scale investment in these types of programs. But yeah, I agree. It would be very scary to have it implemented at this stage nationally without really understanding what the consequences would be. I think it's also great um, to have somebody in the conversation who was a serial entrepreneur, which when I first heard that he was a serial entrepreneur, I was like, well, it could have been like Frosted Flakes. Was he the guy behind Honey Bunches of Oats or like one of the smaller ones? <laughs> and then I found out that 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 it was cereal, like S-E-R-I-A-L. -E and it just meant that he started a bunch of different, in a bunch of different fields, different companies. And I was it's, like, it's way it's lamer. The, it's the much scarier version of cereal as well. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, all right, do you want to wrap this up? What is your final verdict? If you, so if... You were a governor. 
would you implement a pilot project in your city? Well, yeah, no, for sure. Um, but let's like raise the stakes. Let's say if you're a governor, you have to either do it statewide or not at all. What would you do? It depends on the state. Um, Colorado. Yeah, I think it would because it would obviously lead to the problem with doing it in one specific state is that it's going to lead to a huge influx of people from other states because there's no barrier to entry in the United States. Um, but yeah, I think you would have to have some sort of residency requirement yeah. attached to it where you could have one to two years in the state at least before you start receiving your funds. Um, but yeah, I would. I absolutely would. Um, I think the there's enough evidence to try it on that scale and it wouldn't really require anything except for a dismantling of current systems rather than a construction of new systems. Um, and I think that we're at that point where this is not the end of UBI. It's merely the beginning. Um, and so we can reach out to our boy T-Pain and hopefully he's looking on uh, very satisfied with the way things are going. Yeah, I think I think the idea of bringing conservatives, I guess you'd have to argue more central-minded conservatives if those still exist and more kind of centrist liberals together um, under the idea that basically like a promise that we're not going to print more money that would lead to inflation, but that we will um, either generate the money through, you know, cutting or by raising, you know, through, through VAT or actually just making corporations like Apple actually pay the taxes that American corporations <laughs> yeah. should, you know, and not funnel uh, it through Ireland or, you know, through these other countries. Um, then, then I think that would be really like a real kind of like rallying point for both parties. Um, it could be something really cool because again, like the fact that this doesn't necessarily come from um, like liberal economic ideology is a really exciting kind of notion. Um, just, just that to kind of gain consensus. So yeah, uh, to Absolutely. answer your question. It's what, it's what changes this idea from being kind of pie in the sky to something that can actually happen is that idea that it is based on some sort of consensus. Yeah. And I think that, um, yeah, to answer your question, I would, I would definitely do it, um, on a, on a statewide level. Um, because we, well, yeah, I mean, there'd be a lot of pressure and, but, but that's the point is like, you would do it to figure out if it was the right decision. Cause we could be wrong. Like it could totally be a disaster just because of the sheer kind of magnitude of what, um, you know, it could be, and it could turn out that the timing's not right, but to do it at a statewide level would give kind of a decent pilot program that you can then do it for multiple states and then, you know, kind of scale it up from there. Um, but the arguments and critiques that I've currently seen are just so less academically rigorous than the ones that are proponents of it, you know? Absolutely. I think most of the outrage is moral outrage, which does not hold up well to scrutiny. No, not at all. All right, do you want to go to the break and maybe we'll give them a, or should we just give them a rundown of what we're going to do next week? A little online dating. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll take a little break. <laughs> Thank you.
Welcome back, everyone. So, Eddie, it's now time for uh, Morgan's hard-hitting question of the day. One of the major kind of critiques of UBI from the right has been the fear that fully focusing on economics of class differences will lead to greater vote share for economic populists in the sense that they'll be able to basically latch on to the price of individual UBI payments and offer some sort of dramatic increase as a way of winning over favor with individual voters. Do you think this is something that we need to seriously be worried about, or do you think this is kind of fear-mongering? No, I think it's valid. I think that's something we should seriously be worried about, Um, especially because we've seen um, how readily people are predisposed to populists, you know, internationally right now, right? Um, So to think that someone would come along and kind of not in complete good faith exploit the popularity of something like this, if it did indeed work, I think is a totally valid critique and something that should be monitored. Um, I think that can at the same time be weaponized in the sense of anybody who comes from a good faith stance and from an economic angle says, actually, if we did increase, you know, 10%, it would allow us to do these and, you know, decrying them some populace. But I think it would be very kind of clear who, um, was approaching it in a good faith way and who is approaching it just as a means of, uh, as an opportunist, I guess. What do you think? Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think the populist aspect is something not necessarily just from the left, although I've only seen critiques of kind of leftist populists leaning into this. Um, I also think you could see it from the right. I think the most likely pattern would be right-wing populists using anti-immigration stances to not lower the price but eliminate the number of people or limit or kind of dismantle the number of people that are allowed to receive ubi yeah and increase the payments that way as a way of kind of tapping into those kind of biases while the left would be more concerned with increasing ubi in whole Um, and i definitely think that that is something to be worried about with ubi that could play a role in its long-term viability so i i totally agree and with that should we Tell everyone to tune in next week for a little online dating action. Yeah. Adios. Adios, amigos.